<laughs> the readings taken from Luke 18 uh, on page 1052 of the Church Bibles. It's Luke 18, starting at verse 9, it goes down to, to verse 30. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, <clears throat> rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. People were also bringing babies to Jesus to have him touch them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother. All these I've kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. <clears throat> Sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with men is possible with God. Peter said to him, we've left all we had to follow you. Jesus, I tell you the truth, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's good to see you all here this evening uh, on this warm evening. Let me pray for us as we start our time together. Father God, we thank you that we can meet here together this evening and hear you speak to us. That where we are at in our lives, your word rings true and rings clear. Help us in the heat, help us in the excitement of an England World Cup victory to focus now and to engage with what you are saying to us. Amen. It's the big question. Quite possibly the biggest question of all time. It's a question that I'm sure 
all of us will have wandered at some point. It's a question that the world desperately wants an answer to. And of course, that question is, what do I need to do to live forever, to have eternal life? If you type in anti-aging into Google, you'll see a whole load of uh, (laughs) common searches in the drop-down box, from anti-aging cream to anti-aging pillows, face masks, food, and even an anti-aging serum, which sounds to me like some kind of super soldier program. Our society is obsessed with it, with staying young, fighting off the wrinkles, pushing back old age that much longer. And with a life expectancy going up a little bit each year, maybe we can hope to make it to 80, 85, maybe even 90. But deep down, we know that in all of those things, we're just delaying the inevitable. Ultimately, we know that there's only so much that the L'Oreal products and kale can do for us. (laughs) Deep down, we know that death is a certainty. And when we recognize that, we're driven to ask this question, what must I do to get eternal life? It's the big question, and wonderfully this evening, as we look at the words of Jesus, we see his big answer. And as we work our way through this passage in Luke 18, it'd be really helpful for you uh, and for me, as I speak to you, to have that passage open up in front of you. And also, on the uh, evening service sheet, you should have received a copy of, as you came in, you'll find an outline of where we're going this evening. And if you're in Unite, one of our teenagers, that's what we'll be looking at later together, so do uh, have a look at that as we go along. As we come to look at these verses, let's look at this passage with fresh eyes, because what we see here is actually so completely countercultural that should really shock us and our expectations. Now, we've already had a few World Cup shocks so far this tournament. Mexico beating Germany, Croatia beating Argentina, thankfully not Panama beating England. And here in this passage, we see two comparisons. And in both cases, the outcome is not what you would expect. We start with one of Jesus' parables, a story that he tells to explain a deeper truth. And in this mini-narrative, we see two characters, a Pharisee and a tax collector, a religious leader, an upstanding member of society, looked up to by all the people, versus a cheat, a stooge for the Roman occupation that would squeeze people for their money and keep as much to himself as he could. These two figures, worlds apart, both find themselves in the temple. And if you think their standing in society is radically different, then just have a look at the ways in which they pray. The Pharisee, head held high. The tax collector, head bent low. He beats his chest. The Pharisee thanks God that he isn't like everyone else, particularly the sinful tax collector next to him. The tax collector simply asks God for mercy. The Pharisee recalls how 
he fasts and how he gives money. The tax, tax collector simply recognizes that he is a sinner. Complete opposites. And yet, what does Jesus conclude about these two individuals? Well, it's the despised tax collector, not the upstanding Pharisee who is justified before God. It's the self-confessed sinner who Jesus says will be exalted. And it's the upstanding Pharisee who will be humbled. Well, what's going on here? Well, from this parable that Jesus tells, we can see that to be justified, to be right in the eyes of God, to be forgiven of all our wrongs, well, we need to recognize that we have actually done wrong, that we are sinners, that we do need to be justified. Then and only then can we know forgiveness, can we know justification. Jesus is saying it's all well and good to fast, to give, to pray pompous prayers, but if you don't humble yourself before God, then God will humble you. Here we see that life is found in humble contrition and not in our own self-righteousness. And this is confirmed when we look at who Jesus is speaking to. Did you spot the background info that Luke gives us in verse 9? Jesus is speaking to those who are confident in their own righteousness. He's speaking to those who look down on others for not being as impressive as they are. It's to those people that Jesus is saying that forgiveness lies in self-forgetfulness and not in self-righteousness. Self-forgetfulness and not in self-righteousness. It's to those people that Jesus is saying that to be right in the eyes of God, to be justified, we must see ourselves for who we truly are, sinners in need of mercy. That and nothing more. Where do we see ourselves in this part of the passage? It's easy to read Jesus' description of this Pharisee and how he paints that character to be a little bit over the top. You probably won't find people at the midweek prayer meeting this Wednesday thanking God that they're not like the rest of the people on their table. I hope not, anyway. You're unlikely to find individuals declaring in the middle of this church service how great they are for fasting and for giving lots of money to Christian causes. And yet, spiritual pride is a pitfall that we are all in danger of heading into. It might not look quite like it does here with this Pharisee, but there will be times when we find ourselves looking down on others, finding ourselves praying for others and the lack of attendance at church, at house group, which sounds right and is a good thing to pray. But when we search our hearts, we see that it's coming from a place of self-righteousness, as we're yet to miss a single week. I have a confession about confession. There have been times when we're saying the confession together and I've glazed over and I haven't really thought about what I'm saying. Just me? Probably not. It can be quite easy to do, can't it? Particularly on hot evenings like this, to just go through the motions of saying those words together and for them not to really have any meaning for us. 
What are we confessing? Or worse still, as we say the confession together, we find ourselves thinking, I hope that that person over there, I hope that they really meant that. They really need to confess about that. When we think about it, maybe we can see that we're not all that far from the thank God I'm not like them mindset. We're quick to answer how well we're doing in our Christian walks, in talking about the challenging books that we've read, in sharing inspirational quotes and verses online. But when it comes to temptations that we're struggling with, the sins that we're battling with, we're strangely silent. Jesus says, life is found in humble contrition. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Well, we've seen our first unlikely comparison. And now in verse uh, 15 to 25, perhaps an even more extreme contrast than the Pharisee and the tax collector. A ruler who is described in the other gospel accounts as being young and rich approaches Jesus with the question that, that is at the heart of what we're thinking about today. What must I do to inherit eternal life? It's that big question that many of us will have wondered about and perhaps are still searching for the answers to. And in return to that man's big question, Jesus lists the commandments. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't lie. Obey and honour your parents. To which the ruler says, yes, yes, Jesus, that's me. I've done all those things. I've ticked all the boxes. I've kept those commandments since I was a boy, since I was in Pioneers and Pathfinders. So surely, if anyone is deserving of eternal life, it's this guy right here. But he still lacks one thing, Jesus says. Verse 22, sell everything you have and give to the poor. What's going on here? Why is Jesus making such a radical request? Is this the direct answer to how this man is to inherit eternal life? Is the idea of a a certain amount of generous giving, will that allow this man to earn his way to glory, into getting eternal life? Well, no. We know that that can't be right. So what is going on here? Well, to fully understand Jesus' radical requirement, we need to go back to the verses just prior to the account of this rich young ruler in verses 15 to 17. We see Jesus being met by people who want their babies and their little children to be blessed by him. The disciples, however, are having none of it. Jesus and the disciples themselves are far too busy for the likes of unimportant children. And like at those red carpets you see for the new films or music festivals where the celebrities walk by and the security guards push back the people who are too unimportant for their time. That's what the disciples are going for here. And so they rebuke them. And they look to send them away. But Jesus has other plans. Jesus calls the children to him. Why? Because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Verse 17, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, anyone 
who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Now, you don't have to have children of your own to know that a toddler hasn't got a lot to offer other than mess and sleepless nights. Importance in the community, not so much. Wealth, wealth and uh, riches, it's not likely. That perfect lifestyle, keeping all of God's commandments, I don't think it's going to happen. What do these children do here? They don't offer Jesus anything. They don't look to flatter him or impress him with their perfect lives. No, they come empty-handed to Christ and cling to him. And that, that is how to inherit eternal life. That's how we can live forever. That's the answer to our big question, to come empty-handed to Jesus and to fully depend on him. And that's why Jesus tells our rich young ruler to go away and to give all his things, all his money and wealth, because that is what he was depending upon. The call to sell all is intended to force the ruler to trust God and to humbly rely on him, rather than being comfortable in his self-sufficiency. Jesus' radical requirement is a particularly graphic way to bring the point home to this confused young man. He's wrongly placed his security in his wealth and in his works. The ruler doesn't even begin to discuss Jesus' command with him, which shows us where his heart truly lies. He's not ready to come to God on God's terms. The demand is too much for the ruler, and we're told that he goes away very sad, very sad, because he can't part with his wealth. He can't part with his sense of security and worth. But he also knows that money can't buy him eternal life. That big question for him still remains unanswered. But why? Why can't this rich young ruler, who seems to have lived a really good life, a life according to God's commandments, why can't he bring all his merits, all his wealth and works? Why can't he bring those things to the table and still receive eternal life? And maybe that's a question we've asked ourselves. We've recognized the inevitability of death, of our own mortality, and we've gone to God for eternal life. But we've gone with our good works, with our hard-earned money, with the title of being a really nice person. And why not? Why can't we bring our goodness to God and still receive life forever, just as this rich ruler seeks to do? Aren't we good enough for God? Well, the crushing answer is no. No, we're not. You may have missed it. It certainly looks like the rich ruler did. But back in verse 18, we see this young man coming to Jesus and calling him good teacher. To which Jesus replies in verse 19, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And we almost miss it because Jesus goes straight on to list those commandments. But in that short statement, Jesus is making it clear that no one, this rich young ruler, the slightly proud disciples, the self-righteous Pharisee from the story, 
you and I, no one is good. No one is good. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 3 that all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. What this man failed to see is that all his commandment keeping and all his riches are not enough. His works and wealth fall a long, long way short of the mark. The man clings to his riches when he should be clinging to Jesus. The man brings good works when he should come empty-handed to Jesus. And that's why this is such a shocking comparison. Because we leave the upstanding Pharisee and the rich young ruler never having understood this. Ultimately, we leave them without that hope of eternal life. And in contrast, the despised tax collector, the insignificant children, they come with nothing but a recognition of their sinfulness. Nothing but humility. They come with empty hands. And they leave justified. They leave with that promise of the kingdom, of eternal life. This is a real shock when we look at what's really going on in this passage. It should be a shock to us that those who look so impressive, so altogether, are those who haven't understood their need for grace. Grace, God's undeserved gift to us. It's a concept that is deeply shocking to our merit-based society. So shocking that we struggle to understand its depths today. And Jesus picks up on this in verse 24 as he says, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Well, I have here a needle. It's not mine, don't worry. I'm not particularly good at sewing. This is a needle. You won't be able to see it from where you're sat because it is very small. And even smaller than the needle is the eye of the needle itself. Now, the average camel apparently weighs approximately 80 stone, 500 kilograms, if that's how you work. Put those two together, and it's just not going to happen, is it? It's a colorful illustration, one that really captures this man's situation. For this rich young ruler, all his wealth, all his good works, all his self-sufficiency, that's the camel. And the eye of the needle is to humbly recognize that we have to come to God empty-handed and receive grace in order to get that hope of life. Jesus says, for those who are rich, how hard it is for them to enter God's kingdom. Camel going through the eye of a needle kind of hard. And there'll be those here this evening who will also find it hard. Potentially not because of great wealth, but there will be things in our lives where we say, that's what gives me purpose. That's my sense of worth. That's my hope. That's my future. My security. It may be our service at church, our involvement here at St. Mary's. It may be that we see ourselves as good, nice, decent people. Whatever it is, it's stopping us from going to God 
and realizing that we have nothing to offer him. Nothing but empty hands. Nothing but a plea for mercy. Until we understand our need, we will never go to God for grace. And it's so hard to see our need when our wealth and our works look so impressive. We struggle to understand the depths of God's grace. And we struggle to comprehend the extent to which we need it. And the disciples and those present for this conversation between Jesus and the man, well, they struggle too. Have a look at verse 26. They're asking, if this man can't be saved, then who can? If this guy, the best of the best, public leader, hard worker, obedient to God's commands, great wealth and riches, if not even him, then who can be saved? If not him, then this mission really is impossible. And Jesus replies in the well-known verse 27, that what is impossible with man is possible with God. Mission impossible is made possible with God. This passage is such a clear example of our need for God's grace. If even on our very best days we still fall well short of the mark, then what hope is there? Jesus says here that there's none. There is no hope. No hope in ourselves. But in God, there is. There is hope. In God, there is salvation. In God, there is life. And this life can be ours in Jesus. The impossible mission is made possible in Jesus. Jesus, the one who in five chapters' time, you'd only need to turn your pages over a few times, would be arrested and charged, even though he was the only person in all of human history who could be truly called good. He suffered and died. That we might have life, and life forever and ever. That is our hope as Christians, not in our works, our efforts, our prayers, our acts of service, not in how much we read, not in our attendance here. It's in Jesus alone. We come to God empty-handed, knowing that Jesus bore the weight of those nails for us. We come to God heads bowed low, knowing that Jesus lifted his head and his voice and cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The very second we start to find our sense of security in ourselves and in what we do, then we are walking away from that universe-changing act of grace. And we're rejecting the fact that Jesus has done it for us, has done what we could not as we leave this evening. Don't just walk away with smiles on your faces but sadness in your heart because deep down you are still clinging to your works, your wealth, your pride. Let all that go and come to Jesus. Come to Jesus humbly. Come to Jesus recognizing that he has done what we could never do. 
Come to Jesus recognizing that we are sinful. Come to the foot of the cross empty-handed and leave with life. Life forever and ever. Amen. I'll pray for us in a moment, but just uh, let's take a moment of silence to uh, think about what God has been saying to us tonight as we think about how we can respond. If you've never gone to Jesus, if you've never known that grace for yourself, then tonight would be a great time to do that. And do speak to Tim or myself afterwards. Lord God, we are like that Pharisee. We are like the rich young ruler. We see all that we do, all that we say, and we say how good it is. And you say that no one is good except God alone. This evening, help us to know that. Help us to realize our desperate need for grace. And help us to go to your son, Jesus, for life eternal. Amen.